Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. And this week, like last week, we are travelling all the way back to ancient times with the fashion of ancient Egypt. What makes Egyptian fashion so popular, so memorable, so iconic? Well, I think it's how visual it is, how much it stands out from other places and time periods, but also how unique it is in terms of its jewellery, makeup and hair. In fact, the clothes themselves and then the actual fabric outfits are quite simple. Accessories that make ancient Egyptian fashion its own really unique thing. Also, we have so many visual and physical representations of the ancient Egyptians, from hieroglyphs to wall art, paintings, tomb drawings, as well as the actual physical items that people were buried with. And so, of course, as I'm sure you well know, these items were preserved almost perfectly. Now, with that in mind, the architecture is also incredibly standout, unique. It's so recognisable and attached to this time period. And I think that's what just what makes the ancient Egyptians a time in our world history that stands out from the others and makes it so memorable. Of course, I do have to say that the way that many of these sources were found is, you know, extremely dodgy and reeks of privilege, colonialism and imperialism. And this is something that really has to be taken into account when we are studying this time period and the source if we found, because, you know, it's always important to know the how, who and why behind sources such as these. And it's just important to kind of know a little bit about the background behind them. Nevertheless, it's still a time period that really has to be discussed in terms of its iconography as well as its fashion, because despite its more recent past, this is still an era that existed at this time period, you know, in ancient times. And these sources are in some ways what has come to define this era. So as always, it is a little bit of a complicated issue, but it is undeniable that the ancient Egyptians are some of the most famous individuals in world history. It is one of the most famous, well-known time periods in our past, and its fashion is one of the ways that makes this so. So with all that in mind, let's get into it. Now, the generally recognised time period of ancient Egypt is actually a huge, huge span of time and is in fact categorised into a few main time periods, much like in the West. For example, we have the Tudors, the Victorians, the Edwardians, for example. This is something that needs to be taken into account when we are going into a deep dive into the clothes, because naturally these shift and change over time, though not quite as much as we do see in later time periods that we in the West are perhaps more used to. So just to help you here, I'm going to detail each of the different time periods that happened throughout the ancient Egyptian empire, just to give you a sort of idea of how long this spanned and how many unique periods there were. For example, we have the pre-dynastic period, then we have the early dynastic period, which was from 3150 to 2686 BC. We then have the Old Kingdom, which was from 2686 to 2181 BC. Then we have the First Intermediate Period from 2181 to 2055 BC. The Middle Kingdom, which ran from 2134 to 1690 BC. The Second Intermediate Period, 6174 to 1549 BC. The New Kingdom, from 1549 to 1069 BC, the third intermediate period from 
1069 to 653 BC, the late period from 653 to 332 BC, the Plotemic period from 332 to 30 BC, ending with the Roman period, which was from 30 BC to AD 641. <sighs> so yeah, clearly this was a huge, huge amount of time that passed. It's easy to think we have this idea of the ancient Egyptian period just being like 100 years. You know, we think of Cleopatra and Tutankhamun, but actually there's a huge, huge, rich, diverse history in there that does sort of get, you know, forgotten in the general idea of this time period. And so, of course, as expected, fashion shifted and changed throughout these years and each era had its own distinct style within that. Now, in general, when we talk about ancient Egyptian clothing and the clothing that we sort of categorise with this time period and that we know the visuals of, refers to clothes worn in the ancient Egyptian periods from the end of the Neolithic period, so prior to 3100 BC, to the collapse of the Platemic Kingdom with the death of Cleopatra in 30 BC. And as I said, the fashion of ancient Egypt is fascinating. It is adorned with precious gems and jewels. They're beautiful, they're extravagant, they're golden. But they were also made a great deal for people's comfort. Egyptian fashion primarily was created to keep people cool while in the desert. And the fashion of the pharaohs was a combination of these two. It was gilded, it was jeweled, it was completely, you know, garish and fancy as we see it today. But there was also a great deal of the ideas of practicality and comfort included in that, which is what makes it a really interesting time period to study in terms of fashion. In fact, the ancient Egyptians actually placed a lot of value on the idea of keeping clean and in looking clean and put together as well. And this is really intricately tied in here with this idea of comfort, cleanliness, but also fashion. A great many Egyptians bathed in the Nile and used a type of soap made from animal fat and chalk to keep themselves clean. Clothing was also also made from linen that was bleached white to be clean and both men and women of the upper classes wore wigs, jewellery and cosmetics to keep themselves looking tidy. Men also shaved their entire bodies in terms of keeping themselves clean and they used perfumes and ointments which would cover bad odours but also made their skin clean and smooth. So we have here a really fascinating time period, thousands and thousands of years in the past that put so much value on freshness and being clean and cleaning the body. And this is really, really fascinating when you think of how long it was before times like the dark ages, you know, the plague. Time periods we associate so much with bad hygiene and bad smells and just people being quite disgusting in general. Yet here we have a civilization of people who took so much effort and put so much time and research into things that would keep themselves clean, put together and nice for each other to <laughs> see and smell and things like that. And that is also something that I think often gets left out when we think about this time period in terms of the fashion, as well as what I was talking about with the Romans. It is a similar time period after all. There's so much value placed on keeping clean. And I really just think that's completely fascinating when you think about how long ago it was and the kind of innovations that they introduced in terms of, you know, having bright skin and keeping yourself soft and supple and shaved and clean and things like that. Now, with with all this in mind, another thing that I think makes the fashion of this time period so fascinating is that a fact 
that Egyptians generally viewed women as equals and their fashion sense was very, very unisex, long before that word or concept was even understood by more advanced cultures of today. And this idea is something we see represented in the way people looked after their skin and their bodies and their cleanliness and things like that, but also in the fashions that they wore, of course. For example, images from the early dynastic period in Egypt show both men and women of lower classes in the same clothes. A knee-length plain kilt, probably white or light in colour bleach, like I said, and that would have been made of linen or cotton or flax, and it was fastened around the waist by a belt of cloth, papyrus, rope or leather. Now, a great deal of the information I got from this podcast was found um, throughout the internet, but also in prominent books like The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson, Ancient Egypt State and Society from Alan B. Lloyd, Ancient Egypt, a very short introduction from Ian Shaw, and The History of Ancient Egypt, an introduction from Eric Hornung. And there's a great deal of other books like this, you know, where you can find this information. You really have to go looking for information about fashion in these books because, you know, really it's something that is barely written about. You have to literally deep dive for the word clothes to find any sort of (laughs) tiny bit of information. So the internet is also really handy for that because it kind of does a lot of that work for you because it is so hard to find some of this information. Websites like history.com as well is where I find a lot of information as it sort of pulled a lot of that information for me. So that's a really great source. If you're interested in looking at any of this stuff yourself, that is where I got a lot of this information from. Now to get back into it, and because I was talking a little bit about the actual fabrics that clothes were made from, I want to just go into the actual clothes that people would have been wearing. So the ancient Egyptians made their clothes from linen cloth and this was a very common type of fabric in the ancient world as we saw in the last episode as well and of course it's a fabric that we still know and use today but I think nowadays it's a lot more expensive than it would have been back then. It actually would have been quite a cheap alternative. Of course as always there was a huge disparity in the quality of linen between you know the poorer and the more wealthy people. For example the clothes of the wealthy were made from finer linen while ordinary people used thicker, coarser cloth. And to make linen, you would have to have picked flax and spun it using linen looms. This practice was used throughout the ancient world and throughout Egypt and spread to other parts of the world from Egypt, in fact, and became sort of the main way to make linen cloth. The earliest picture of a loom is featured on a pottery bowl dated to around 3000 BC from the ancient world. And because linen is made from flax, it helped people to stay cool in the heat of the ancient Egyptian world. Binning, weaving and sewing were very important techniques for Egyptian society as it helped make this very important practical item of clothing using this fabric. Much like we saw in the last episode, dyes were also applied to clothing sometimes, but usually it was just bleached or kept its natural colour. And in the early periods, making clothing begun in the home and was often made by individuals for themselves and their family, but this soon turned into a huge industry once linen and eventually cotton in the later periods became more popular and the general practice. It was a very fast-paced industry that created a lot of money for the ancient Egyptians, because even 
really expensive clothes and dresses and kilts were made from flax linen and were rarely created in any other shape other than the simple kilted shape. So the weaving, looming and making of these clothes did not take a great deal of work in the same way that other types of clothes from other parts of the world may have done. Like I said at the beginning, they were really quite simple, the actual physical clothes themselves, and it was the jewellery and the, the accessories that made them stand out. So also, as I said earlier, up until the time of about the New Kingdom, Egyptian people wore the same very simple style of clothing. For women, it was just a dress with a shoulder strap, and for men, it was a simple kilt. Sometimes these fabrics would have maybe pleats or knots folded into them to provide, you know, a bit of fanciness, a bit of decoration, especially if the person wearing them could not afford more expensive beads and jewelries to help them stand out. And much like we saw in my last episode, again, I'm referencing it a lot, but there's a lot of crossovers here. Standing out and supplanting yourself in society with your fashion was hugely important to this culture, despite the simplicity of the actual fabric clothing. In fact, this basic concept of simplicity did not really change much from the Old Kingdom throughout the Potemic dynasty and that was the last dynasty to rule Egypt before it was sort of taken over by the Roman dynasty. The kinds of fashions we see in the later period are very close to those from the New Kingdom and follow the basic form of Old Kingdom dress. And because general fashions were not massively different between the classes in the same way as other cultures, this general style did not change a great deal. Now, obviously it did change a bit and you can track the minutiae of change, but on the whole, these big changes were not as visual and not as obvious as we may expect for the length of time that the Egyptians ruled. Although women's clothing changed little more than men's during the Middle Kingdom, in fact, men's clothing stayed very similar as we can see from art and paintings from the time period. And the two most notable changes were the pleating of the skirts and the adoption of the triangular apron from upper-class men. The starch ornament kilt was held up by a sash and worn over a loincloth, and these are the main changes we can see. Obviously, with a time period that is this far back from nowadays and this long ago, that's all that we know. There might be a great deal that happened that we just have no idea about because it wasn't documented, and this is all always something you need to take into account when you're doing research of these sort of ancient time periods because we're so reliant on what exists and what we can see because you can't talk to people. There's no photos, there's no real way to know the complete minutiae of the day-to-day -day changes, the year-to-year -year changes that we saw in these ancient periods and you have to take everything you see with a pinch of salt and know in the back of your mind that this is the case and as fascinating as it is to track the changes that we see, know that there's many that we probably don't and will never know about. Now, during the Old, Middle and New Kingdom, ancient Egyptian women mostly wore simple sheath dresses called kalasiris. Women's clothing in ancient Egypt was quite conservative um, and covered the body a lot more than men's clothing did. Like I said, men would have just wore skirts or kilts. Dresses would have generally covered as much as the body as was safe and comfortable in the heat, and the length of the dress denoted the social class of its wearer. Sometimes women had the choice of wearing shawls or robes or capes over the top of their dress to add a bit of distinction and to show their class, and some dresses were held up by decorated straps. Now, as always, there is some distinction between the upper, lower and classes and some distinction between men and women. But as you're seeing here, it is a lot less distinct than other cultures. And there's a real simplicity and similarity between the two, which is quite fascinating. 
This may be because of the heat, but there are a lot of other reasons for this as well. Women's clothing did, of course, change in the later time periods. For example, women began to wear tighter fitting dresses that sat just below the breasts and above the ankles and were held up with two shoulder straps, with the dress hugging the body without any looseness like we see in the earlier time periods. The Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology in London has an example of something called a network dress, which was a dress made of cylinder beads and breast caps, um, which was found from an Egyptian burial site. And this is likely from the 5th dynasty, so a longer time period ago. So there are examples here of women wearing tighter dresses earlier, but you know, like I said before, it's a tricky thing to track. Also, according to Gay Robin in a book called Women in Ancient Egypt from 1993, in contrast to the dresses shown in sort of art depictions, many linen garments for women would have been much baggier and would have concealed rather than revealed the body for most of the ancient Egyptian time periods. Now, in fact, it's often the fashion of the New Kingdom that are those that are the most depicted in media, um, no matter what sort of time they're supposed to be set in. And the New Kingdom was the era of Egypt's empire where the country stepped into the international stage and came into co closer contact with other nations than they had before. And so fashion naturally changed too, especially for women. Clothes particularly became a little more elaborate than the sort of linen sheets that I was just talking about from the earlier time periods. Amose I's wife, Amose Nefertari, probably saying that wrong, is depicted in a dress with winged sleeves and a wide collar that falls over above the ankles. Clothes also began to be beaded and gowns and dresses were decorated with jewels and these became far more common in the New Kingdom among the upper classes. People also started to wear elaborate wigs which were adorned with beads and jewels and Egyptologists just Margaret Bunsen notes how the capillet made of sheer linen was the fashion innovation of the New Kingdom. The capillet or shawl cape was a rectangle of linen twisted, folded or cut and usually attached to an ornamented collar. It was worn over a calisarius, which is the type of dress I mentioned earlier, which fell either from the waist or just below the breast and became the most popular style of the upper classes in the New Kingdom. Margaret Bunsen is actually quite a prolific um, historian of ancient Egypt and her books are a great place to turn if you want a little more detailed information, particularly about the history of women and of fashion. Go have a look at those. A lot of them are on Google Books and they're all sort of from the early to mid 90s. I also got um, a lot of the information about the New Kingdom here from an article called Fashion and Dress in Ancient Egypt from worldhistory.org. Now, according to the same article, men's fashion also advanced fairly quickly in the New Kingdom. The kilts of this period drop to below the knee, are more intricately embroidered, and they are often supplemented by a sheer loose-fitting blouse. The pharaoh, as they say, depicted in the nymph's headdress, is often seen in this kind of clothing, wearing either sandals or slippers. Bunsen again notes how men wore kilts and sheer blouses with elaborately pleated sleeves. Great panels of woven material hung from the waist and intricate folds were visible under these sheer overskirts. And this style was popular with the royalty and upper classes who were able to afford all this lavish material. When it comes to this idea of the upper classes, upper class Egyptians throughout every period, as well as the New Kingdom, dressed really the same as men, 
only with a little more ornamentation, as I just mentioned. Egyptologist Helen Strudrick observes how only by their jewellery could men from the wealthy class be distinguished from farmers and artisans. And women's dress was more distinctive between classes as upper-class women wore these figure-fitting dresses that was mentioned earlier. And these often did not have big sleeves, whereas men's outfits would have differed a little bit in the shape and the type of sleeves that they would have had for the upper and lower classes, but the upper classes particularly. Now, speaking again of the New Kingdom, which, as I said, is the time period that we know the most visually in terms of the ancient Egyptians, the lower classes actually continued to wear the simple kilt, and this was the same for both the sexes. But now more women of the working class appeared with more decorated covered tops. Previously, Egyptian servants were depicted in tomb paintings and other art as naked or very nearly so. But in the New Kingdom, a number of servants are shown not only fully clothed, but in fairly elaborate dresses. In fact, women's fashion that sort of showed the breasts completely were not really a matter of concern um, in ancient Egyptian cultures. Upper class women's dresses sometimes even began below the breasts and went all the way to the ankles. Lower class women's skirts, as I said, were from the waist to the knees without a top sometimes. And before the development of linen, people wore clothes made of animal hide or woven papyrus reeds. And so creating an item of clothing that was simpler and smaller before the introduction of linen was far easier. And it is into the new kingdom that we see these more covered decorated clothing become more adopted by people. With this in mind, underwear was actually developed further during this period as according to the article I mentioned a minute ago. And it evolved from the rough triangular loincloth that only men wore wrapped between the legs and around the waist to a piece of cloth that was sewn to a certain waist side or tied at the hips. And this is kind of the underwear that we know today really apart from just a simple piece of loincloth which we just wouldn't wear now. <laughs> Upper class men's fashion in the New Kingdom was this type of underwear but beneath a loincloth over which was worn a long sheer skirt falling to the knees, including a broad neck piece for the nobility, bracelets and sandals. In fact, King Tutankhamun, who ruled from 1336 to 1327 BCE, was buried with over 100 pieces of this kind of underwear, as well as shirts, jacket, kilts and cloaks. And this provided us some information about the new kingdom that we didn't know previously before these things were found. The fact that Tutankhamun also ruled during the new kingdom just shows you why and how it has become the time period that we most associate with the ancient Egyptians. But as I said earlier, there's in fact um, so much diversity here and so much time period in which the fashion was slightly different to this image that we have um, allowed to represent the entirety of ancient Egypt. Now, of course, we know that pharaohs and upper class individuals wore these highly decorated jeweled pieces of clothing. But actually, when you look at the clothing of sort of day to day working people, it's just as fascinating in its own way. Much like we have today with uniforms, different jobs and professions would have had their own items and specific pieces of clothing. For example, viziers wore a long skirt that was often embroidered, which fastened under the arms and fell to the ankles along with a pair of sandals or slippers. 
scribes, writers, wore the simple waist-to-knee kilt that is sometimes seen with a sheer blouse, and priests actually wore white linen robes and, according to writer Herodotus, could wear no other colour as white symbolised purity and the sacred. Soldiers, guards and police forces also wore the simple kilt with sandals and sometimes wrist guards. Farmers, brewers, tavern keepers, masons, labourers and merchants are uniformly depicted from this time period in the same simple kilt, both male and female alike, which again is so fascinating. Though the merchant sometimes appears in a robe or a cloak. Coats, jackets and cloaks were also common throughout Europe's history as the temperature at night, and especially in the rainy season, could become quite cold and so labourers and physical workers would have had to have adopted this as part of their uniform. Again, all this information, as it was so well written, (laughs) I've just taken straight from worldhistory.org. Also though, according to a book called The Priests of Ancient Egypt from Serge Saunderson from 2000, wearing palm sandals among a people who generally walked barefoot was one of the privileges of the priestly class. This was the judgment of the Greek writers, at least, and Egyptian texts themselves count white sandals as one of the attributes of a priest. Now, with this in mind, the shoes of ancient Egypt are actually a really interesting piece of microhistory in terms of the fashion. Footwear was generally the same for both men and women, and it was usually sandals that were leather work or for the priests, as I said, papyrus. Now, as the book I just mentioned said, Egyptians were usually barefoot, but sandals were sometimes worn for special occasions or times where their feet needed to be protected or depending on their job if they were priests. Footwear, in fact, was quite a luxury item. And if they did have access to making or buying and wearing shoes, this would have been from fabrics such as papyrus or reeds, as reeds grew along the banks of the River Nile, were easy to find and easy to weave. But among the very lower classes, footwear was basically non-existent. And for people like servants and peasants, they just would not have worn shoes. But these people in general often did not even wear clothes. So the fact that they couldn't even access a linen kilt and would go about their day wearing nothing, it's, you know, safe to assume they wouldn't have had access to something as detailed and as hard to make as a pair of sandals. Sometimes servants and peasants would have just wrapped their feet in rags to protect them from maybe the heat of the sand and the heat of the floor or to protect their feet if they were doing something um, you know more hard labouring and difficult where their feet needed to be covered. The upper classes also sometimes wore slippers inside as well and Tutankhamun's tomb actually contained 93 pairs of sandals and slippers in different styles and one even made of gold. Slippers were also made of papyrus and rushes and woven together but would have covered more of the foot than a pair of sandals. In fact, other cultures around the world had started to develop the shoe and the boot at this time period, particularly in the time period of the New Kingdom, and so it makes sense that shoes would have become slightly more popular from the New Kingdom onward. It also makes sense that people wouldn't have popularised wearing shoes because the ancient Egyptian gods did not wear shoes. I haven't really mentioned the gods yet in this episode, but it's more about um, actual day-to-day people. But the gods would have played a big part in the sort of clothing and styles that people were choosing, how decorated they were, the fabrics they used, the patterns they would have used, and shoes were no stranger to this. But if they would have worn shoes or sandals, the coiled sewn sandals of the ancient Egyptians were the most popular and they were constructed using a technique similar to basket weaving, whereby coils were sewn together with material used in construction for the coils. They were usually sewn and coiled together with reeds or grass, like I said. This information on shoes I found from an article from the British Museum from 2017 called Studies of Ancient Egypt Footwear, Technological Aspects. Very deep cut, but very fascinating. (laughs) 
Now, talking about the idea of not wearing shoes, which I think to us in the West particularly is a really interesting concept because it's not something we would even consider today going about our day-to-day lives without shoes. But that's because, you know, it's so cold and everything is made of concrete. So that just sounds pretty rubbish. But actually, another thing I want to mention is that children up until the age of six would have never worn clothing again. A concept that is so bizarre to us nowadays, but actually was completely normalised for this culture of people. Once children turned six, they were allowed to wear clothing which would have protected them from the dry heat. But actually, up until this point, they would not have gone out a great deal, so they would have worn nothing. Children would have just been naked all the time, up until the age of six. And even though they didn't really wear much clothing, they did wear jewellery if they were from the upper classes, like collars or hair accessories or anklets. There was also a distinctive hairstyle for children, which told told people their age and their class and this was something called a side lock which was an unshaven length of hair on the right side of the head apart from that the head was shaved so there you go children would have had a really really distinctive look at this time period and children's fashion is often something that gets forgotten. I think it doesn't get spoken about or written about quite as much, but actually can give a really fascinating insight into the social and political ideals of a culture, of a people, of a time period. And the ancient Egyptians are no different. The way that they dressed and styled their children was so distinctive and said a lot about how they looked after their children, how they maybe treated them and how distinctive this was between social classes. This distinctive hairstyle was also usually reserved for boys and girls would have worn their hair in a type of pigtail and they'd keep their hair in pigtails usually until they were about 12 years old which was when you were deemed an adult in ancient Egyptian culture. Interestingly, also, the boy's hairstyle, the one with the sort of pleated um, lock on the side, was called the side lock of youth. And again, they would keep this up until about 12, which is when they were deemed an adult. So again, like I said, studying the fashion and the styles of children, or what was given to children by adults, um, tells you a lot about how different time periods treated children and how they were distinguished. Because I think in a lot of culture and a lot of religions as well, a person is deemed an adult at 13, 16 or 18. And so 12 is a really interesting age because that's not something you see come up a lot. Obviously, the idea of the teenager is a very modern idea. We don't really see this happen until sort of after the war in the 50s in England and America and places like that is where the word teenagers started to come in. And particularly the age preteen, which is a very modern idea too, just wasn't in use. And so it's interesting here that 12 is deemed an adult because that's just so young to us nowadays. But there's so much there that needs to be considered in terms of jobs people had, how long they would have lived, their social standing. And so, yes, studying the fashion can tell you all of these things. Who knew? (laughs) Well, I did. (laughs) Now, we know this to be popular hairstyle, the side look of youth, because there are many visual representations of this seen in art and sketches, as well as stone reliefs. And so we know, you know, visually that this was something that was popular throughout the ancient Egyptian period from even as far back as the Old Kingdom. For example, there is a stone relief of Ramesses II, which very clearly shows him wearing the side look of youth. Also, speaking of hair, I have to talk about wigs and hairstyles of the ancient Egyptian period because, as visually we know, this was a huge part of 
Egyptian fashion and really signifies the imagery of ancient Egypt. Wigs, as many other types of fashion here, were worn by both of the sexes and particularly and only really by the wealthy. They were usually made from human hair and sometimes supplemented with date palm fibre. They were styled in tight curls and narrow braids as well. And for special occasions, men and women would top their wigs with cones or perfumed hats that would melt to release the fragrance and condition the hair. This information I found from the Asian journal Pharmaceutics from 2009. There is also a painting from around 1250 BCE of a woman wearing a very distinct wig as well as a head cone and she looks fantastic. <laughs> now wigs also for both males and females were also made from sheets wool or vegetable fibres and um, wigs were worn for a few reasons but mostly because they showed your high rank in Egypt's strict social hierarchy but also it would have protected your head from the sun because usually people would have shaved their heads but also wigs would have helped you maintain hygiene levels and would have stopped you having head lice because in a very hot climate this was something that would have been hard to combat. Priests would have also shaved their head for this idea of um, ritual purity and as well as their heads as I said earlier they would have also shaved their entire bodies almost every other day to guard against lice um, and anything else unpleasant but also also for their religious duties and to keep themselves pure. And so priests would have worn wigs too to protect their head from the sun and other reasons. So in general, wigs were a very, very popular way of hairstyling, both for fashion, social and practical reasons. These wigs would have also been dark in colour, usually black or very, very dark brown, and sometimes decorated with beads, shells or gilding. And this sort of gilded decorated wig is, I think, one of the most popular images of ancient Egypt that we have of Cleopatra wearing her fancy gilded wig in a braided style with the sort of gold headband over a cross. Now, this is difficult to know how truthful this sort of popularised image of the ancient Egyptian hairstyle, wig style is, as there are many depictions of Cleopatra with this sort of hairstyle, from wall paintings, papyrus paintings to reliefs, but obviously over time it has become its own beast and sort of taken on its own visual style that maybe is quite far away from the truth of it. You know, thinking of um, Elizabeth Taylor's uh, problematic depiction of Cleopatra um, in Hollywood, as well as just every kind of version of ancient Egyptian fashion or drawing or costume uh, as you can think of. Hairstyles in ancient Egypt in general are very fascinating in terms of fashion because, like I said, men would have often shaved their head, including common people, servants, slaves, as well as noblemen. Even the kings would have shaved their heads. And the main difference between these would have been the rich would have been able to access and afford wigs, whereas the poorer peasant class would not. Women also had a variety of hairstyles over, you know, a huge time period. <laughs> and at sometimes shorter hair was in fashion, at sometimes braids were in fashion, at sometimes plaited hair was preferred and sometimes sort of curlier longer hair was preferred and wigs were a way to keep up with these changing fashions and this is something that is seen throughout the Egyptian period and actually the hairstyles the style of the wig what was most popular what we can see depicted in certain time periods is a way of tracking the fashions of tracking the time periods visually as as I said 
physical clothes, linen kilts and things like that were just generally more simple and did not change massively. But hairstyles and wigs are the one thing that we see changing a great deal throughout every single time period, particularly from the New Kingdom onwards. For example, there are wooden statues from the 18th dynasty, which show Egyptian women in tighter kalasaris, which is what I said was the dress that fitted closer to the body and changed over time. And she has a very long straight wig. And this is how you know that it was a certain time period within this smaller period. Also, in terms of the pharaohs, for you know a variety of reasons, no one was ever allowed to see a pharaoh's real hair. And so they would have always wore crowns, head dresses or wigs. And these are often the depictions of pharaohs that you can see in media and popular culture and in actual representations from the time. And this imagery of the pharaohs with the distinctive wig is what has come to really sum up our imagery of the ancient Egyptians and has supplanted this image of the decorated, gildest, wigged individual that we really know today. Now, speaking of the royals of ancient Egypt and Cleopatra particularly, I have to talk a little bit about makeup. According to Christian Amatore from the University Pierre and Marie Curie in Paris, France, people wore it on a daily basis. And in fact, Cleopatra's eye makeup would have warded off infections, as according to National Geographic. Thick coats of black and green eye makeup made from lead may have boosted the immune system of ancient Egyptians as suggested in a new study, which is just really fascinating. French researchers suggest that the ancient Egyptians' heavily painted eyelids that we all know, the sort of smoky eye, did more than just attract admirers, they also protected against eye infections. Artifacts and documents from ancient Egypt show that everyone, man or woman, from servant to queen, wore black and green powders coated thickly around the eyes. And according to ancient Egyptian manuscripts, the eye makeup was believed to have a magical role in which the gods Horus and Ra would protect wearers against several illnesses. Bacterial eye infections such as conjunctivitis, for example, would have been a common problem among the Nile's tropical marshes. But previous chemical analysis of powder residue taken from ancient makeup containers had isolated four lead-based compounds. And this would seem to suggest that the makeup was harmful since lead can be highly toxic to humans. But instead, the new study found that low doses of lead salts in the makeup may have actually had beneficial properties. When the salts come into contact with skin, they boost the body's production of nitric oxide. This chemical is known to stimulate the immune system and help fight off diseases which cause bacteria. And based on the amount of lead compounds in the ancient makeup, whereas nitric oxide levels would have increased by 240% according to this study. Amatore said two of these chemicals do not occur naturally and would have taken 30 days of hard work to make. And so with this in mind, the popularity of Egyptian makeup may have had practical reasons that we wouldn't even consider. As I said at the very, very beginning of this episode, the Egyptians had a lot of different ways in which they would keep themselves clean, tidy, looked after, their skin neat, soft and supple, and makeup likely then would have played a part in that too, much like ointments and creams and shaving the head. But also because your general appearance was so popular and important to these people, it made sense that makeup would have played a part in their day-to-day wear, particularly for the upper classes. You know, they were wearing jewels and beads and feathers and things like that. So it makes sense that they would have also decorated their faces. And so then we see the wearing of makeup potentially taking on two different 
beasts here, much like today. We do have face creams, we have powders, we have ointments and liquids and, you know, toners and all these things that look after our skin. And that is the first level to our beauty regimes. And then the makeup is next. And so makeup um, in for the ancient Egyptians would have played a similar role, which is really, really fascinating. Again, considering how long ago this was and how we often associate people of the past being, you know, dumber and less knowledgeable about these things, but actually that might not have been the case. And we definitely need to reframe our general idea of ancient civilizations and ancient peoples, because clearly we've got it all wrong. And the plague and the Black Death and things like that have particularly marred our (laughs) imagery of these people. And actually the fashion and the makeup is a really distinctive way in which we can do this. Obviously, there are a lot of moral issues here, political, social things. They kept slaves, all these horrible things. And that obviously needs to be taken into account. That goes without saying, of course. But actually, there's a lot of things here. If you deep dive in and you really do the research, that completely changes the way that we see these ancient civilizations, particularly when it comes to the way they looked after themselves and their bodies. Now, it was coal which was used for the eyes, and this was used to paint thick black lines around your eyes. It is a black powder made from a substance called galena, which is the source of lead. And this ore was found near the Nile and on the banks of the Red Sea, as I said a minute ago. And in fact, both the rich and the poor would have wore coal around their eyes. It came in sticks for those who did not have much money, and the wealthy would have kept it loose in boxes. And you would have mixed the powder with liquids and animal fats to make it easier to apply. And this is also really interesting because coal became more popular in the 1920s and was used in 1920s makeup and actually would have been used in the same way. Eye makeup, eyeliner, coal, things like that would have come in solid blocks that you would have mixed with fats and water to apply it. So we have a time period here, the 1920s, which we associate with beauty and emancipation for women. And in fact, they were just adopting things that were done from people thousands and thousands of years ago. Eye makeup coal particularly was a really, really important part of Egyptian culture and would have been used on the daily from people of all different social classes. In fact, many pharaohs sent expeditions out to bring back the coal, you know, the resource, because it was so important to the ancient Egyptians and had so many different uses in terms of keeping yourself clean, keeping your eyes protected from the sun, apparently protecting you from conjunctivitis, um, as well as just for fashion reasons to display yourself in the way you wanted to be displayed. Ancient Egyptians would have also decorated their face as well as their eyes, including their cheeks and their lips. And the red colour, which was applied to the lips particularly, came from ochre. And this was mixed with animal fat again to make it compact and preserve it. Perfume is also really popular in the ancient Egyptian time period. And this was a way of not cleaning yourself necessarily, but making yourself smell nice, making yourself appealing to people and making yourself come across as clean. A bit like we use deodorant today, I think. Some perfumes were worn on the body and some, which were highly regarded, were burned as incense in palaces and temples. And like I said earlier, the cone on their head is the use of a kifi in its cone form and this was composed of frankincense, myrrh, pine resin and other ingredients which was burned and applied to the skin or used as toothpaste and mouthwash as well. So it was worn on the top of your wig to make yourself clean and smell nice but it had a multitude of other uses. The kifi was most often used by women and 
and was used usually like perfume how we use it today. Now, in terms of this idea of decorating yourself, I think ancient Egyptian jewellery is also one of the things that is really supplanted in our mind as an important piece of ancient Egyptian fashion. One thing we think of the most is the Ushek collar. I hope I'm saying that right. And as early as the Old Kingdom, Egyptian artisans made images of gods, kings and mortals wearing these broad collars, which were made of beads or weaved gold. Now it's basically a type of broad collar um, or necklace and deities, women and men were depicted wearing this jewellery more often than not. We see it on the famous gold mask of Tutankhamun, as well as various other physical imagery depictions of the ancient Egyptians, particularly the upper classes. Now you can find many examples of these that survive today in museums, particularly around America, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as well as the Brooklyn Museum. So do have a look at the collections of these museums, as you'll get some really cool visuals of what these would have looked like because they, you know, they're doing pretty well. They're alive and well even today. But although this is the most sort of probably famous and popularized image of ancient Egyptian jewelry, the ancient Egyptians actually wore a huge diverse amount of jewelry throughout every time period. Particularly they wore flint jewelry, mostly in the prehistoric, proto-dynastic and early dynastic periods. And flint would have been used to make bracelets, arm collars and ankle collars as well. Again, many surviving examples of flint bracelets can be found in collections held at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Brooklyn Museum, as well as the Cairo Museum of Egyptian Antiquities and the Pitt Rivers Museum. The pectoral or pectorals were also a very, very popular piece of jewellery and this was often worn as a type of brooch. It was mainly worn by pharaohs and people of the very, very upper class or people with a lot of money. But this is also a very infamous, famous, beautiful piece of Egyptian jewellery. Sometimes they were attached with necklaces suspended from the neck, but they were meant to lie upon the chest and the breast, so were usually in a brooch form, particularly seen in the later periods. Now, these were also not just used for fashion beauty reasons. They were also thematic and iconographic and they would have included words and signs which would have been attributed to pharaohs and statements of ancient Egyptian mythology and culture. Sometimes these would have had hieroglyphs and would have also included images that we know well such as the Eye of Horus or the Ankh. But essentially jewellery in all different forms, whether collar, brooches, simpler bracelets or anklets, was hugely popular in ancient Egyptian culture. It was usually heavy, made of gold, and its main reason was aesthetic function. But as we saw with the pectoral, it was also for thematic iconographic reasons. One thing that's interesting though is because silver was so hard to find and imported all the way from Asia, it was silver that was usually considered more precious than gold for the ancient Egyptians. Even though we now associate gold with money, richness, you know, the upper classes, the royals, actually at this time period, silver would have been seen as just as precious. In fact, it could be said that we attribute this importance to gold because of the ancient Egyptians and how much they wore it in the upper classes. And we now associate richness and grandeur and royalty with the wearing of gold because of how long the ancient Egyptian period was, how many years the pharaohs reigned for, and how much this would have supplanted our ideas of richness and royalty. But the Egyptians also used a lot of precious stones in their jewellery, as well as glass and beads. 
as well as sort of precious rock. The Egyptians also wanted to make use of very bright colours because their clothes were so simple and you saw lustrous stones and precious metals used in much of their jewellery. We saw the use of carnelian, feldspar, amethyst, turquoise and lapis lazuli and these colours would have just been so bright and amazing when you saw these people out and about and if you were a pharaoh or someone of um, a richer class wearing this jewellery would have made you stand out so much against people who would have been either wearing nothing or you know linen sacks essentially and particularly if you were somewhere where the sun was shining it would have just like caught on the gold and all these precious metals and jewels and you would have just looked incredible <laughs> We do also need to remember that in the desert, there are a great many mines which allowed the Egyptian people to access a huge amount of gold ore, which would have been beaten and cast into shape or in moulds and turned into jewellery. Goldsmiths at the time period used a method called granulation, which would have made patterns in their jewellery. And this amounted to soldering tiny granules of gold into an object as decoration. And this I found on worldhistory.org. But essentially the ancient Egyptians, both men and women alike, as we see throughout this, would have worn a huge amount of different types of jewellery, necklaces, bracelets and earrings as well made of gold and precious metals and this would have been a way to supplant your status in society and make yourself stand out. So I think that feels like a really great place to stop here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed researching it. I really don't know what I wanted to find out, but I found out so much fascinating stuff. And there, again, there is so much <laughs> to pack into one episode. Honestly, it was almost impossible to try and piece this together into a episode that you could follow naturally. Um, because as I mentioned, the ancient Egyptian civilization was thousands and thousands of years long. It wasn't just, you know, a hundred years or 50 years. We think of Tudor fashion, like I did another episode of that. The Tudors did not run for that long. This is like studying English history from, you know, the medieval time period all the way up to the eighties. It's almost impossible to try and do this and create a kind of followable episode, so to speak. So I hope I hit all the marks here and I hope you learn a little bit. I think the stuff about makeup being used to ward off infections is fascinating. Have a look at that study if you're more interested. All the information is on an article from National Geographic. But also I just think going into each individual piece is really interesting to see how this look is made up because I think sometimes it can be a bit tricky to know how these looks are actually constructed. You know, you have this general image of the pharaoh of Cleopatra of an Egyptian individual, but studying it piece by piece and knowing layer by layer what people would have been wearing is really, really cool. And I love doing that. And I think that was the best way to go about this episode, really. But anyway, as always, I hope you had a fun time. I hope you learned something. Do let me know if I missed anything, which I probably did, or let me know if you found anything particularly interesting. You can contact me on at Silhouettes Podcast on Instagram and also on my Spotify page at Silhouettes of Fashion History Podcast. I will often leave questions or polls or things like that for you to answer. So do head over there if you want to interact a little bit more with the podcast. I would love to see that. But anyway, this is going to be the final episode before the new year. So I'm really sorry about that, but... <laughs> 
Um, I think it's a fun one to leave off on. Not very Christmassy, but that doesn't matter because it was still really interesting. We'll pick up with a new, new, new series in the new year. I'm not going to spoil what that is yet, but it will be just as fun as the last few. So do keep your ears open for that. But yeah, I hope you had a good time and I will see you in the next one in 2023. Stay fab, everyone. <laughs>